Welcome, 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 ladies and gentlemen, everybody in between. This is Feature This, a fan edit podcast. Dipping our toe into the MCU, otherwise known as the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Okay, um, when it comes to fan editing, I've always said that uh, sci-fi movies tend to work better for this medium more than anything else. Science fiction is this weird genre that always kind of tries to appeal to a larger audience, when all of the best sci-fi out there does its does does well to not do this, um, keeping a focused and tight use of science fiction in order to tell a very niche thing about humanity has always been um, really the best use of science fiction, and um, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is it's a movement. Um, that started back in um, started back when the original Iron Man came out, and it's gone from that to you know the in, almost inconceivably large franchise that it is now. And the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a whole doesn't know how to handle science fiction correctly. Like it, it all of the movies tend to be a little bit weak not just in storytelling but in um in trying to utilize the the science science fiction elements into it and thor the 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 two thor movies and also thor's presence in the avenger movies to me highlights this difficulty more than anything else um but this is sort of the um kind of the end of a of a series of conclusions that brought me to this and this this is the first fan edit that I'm doing of um, of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and it bears me kind of spilling some of my my personal experiences with uh, the MCU and what I think about the uh, franchise overall. I I remember when the first trailer started coming out for Iron Man, and it just didn't seem right. Like, why, if you're going inter- to start introducing comic book uh, characters on this large cinematic scale and treat it with seriousness, why Iron Man? Uh, you know, Batman had gotten sort of a, a, a makeover with Nolan, and Marvel, it, it was time for them to do a response, and they started with Iron Man. It didn't seem like the right choice. Um, and I felt more convinced of that when the first trailer came out because the trailer ended with the... Um, the uh, playing of the soundtrack, or not the soundtrack, but the song by Black Sabbath, the Iron, I am Iron Man. And it's just so, it was so tact, it was so cheesy that I was like, okay, if this is where the trailer's going, then there's no way that this, this thing is going to be anything but a, a goof of a film that sort of panders to the fact that there's an audience that is going to see it, uh, whether it's good or not. 
Um, and I and everybody else was surprised at how well Iron Man uh, worked. Um, of course, the success of that film is based off the performance of Robert Downey Jr., who uh, is sort of a, an actor that sort of plays a version of himself in every movie, but that's how uh, A-list actors are. Uh, Bruce Willis will always be a version of himself in the movies. Tom Cruise will always be a version of himself. Um, they're not what we call character actors, um, although um, Downey probably has a little bit more character, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. The point is Thor was successful, um, and it wasn't just successful financially, it wasn't just successful because of the timing or whatnot, it was, um, it was successful because it's a pretty good movie. Um, and although I have to say, like, uh, the third act is a little weak because they sort of fall into the trappings of many of these types of movies where as good as the hero is, the bad guy is just sort of a bigger, better, badder version of him. Uh, they made that mistake with the first Iron Man movie. They made that mistake with the uh, Incredible Hulk movie uh, with uh, Edward Norton. Um, and they sort of did it. They repeated that mistake again kind of with Iron Man 2. It's, it's, a, it's a struggle uh, to try to find a competent bad guy uh, for these kinds of movies. But anyway, I remember when Iron Man came out, and of course now the hubbub is, well, what are they going to do next? Uh, we've already seen a few Hulk movies, the ones with um, uh, Eric Bana, and uh, and I think uh, I think it was slated that the Edward Norton one was ready to come out. So we knew Hulk was on the horizon, um, but Hulk sort Hulk sort of had a science fiction premise. You know, he's hit with gamma rays. Uh, Iron Man was sort of based in in science fiction. He was able to uh, build his suit in a in a in a tangible real world, um, but. Th- Thor, Thor. I remember ask, I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine, going, "I just, I just don't see how they're going to fit Thor in this universe, um, with the, the the incarnation of Iron Man and the incarnation of Incredible Hulk. How does Thor fit into that?" And I remember making a joke, like, "I know how this is going to work. Thor's going to appear, and uh, he's a god. You know, this fantastical god is going to come drop down into this, you know, semi-based in real life world with Tony Stark and." That was established with Iron Man. And he's just going to be there. And I can imagine a sequence where uh, he and Iron Man are just talking. And Iron Man just kind of looks at him. So he's like, so uh, you're a Norse god. And Thor's like, yep. And uh, then Iron Man just kind of turns away in a classic Robert Downey Jr. fashion. And goes, okay. And just sort of accepts it and moves on. And uh, I felt like that's the only way to sort of whitewash the, the, the fantastical elements of what what would be required uh, to introduce Thor to this world um, on top of this mo- on top of this franchise that's trying to uh, root itself in uh, I'm gonna I was gonna say believable science fiction but obviously the stretch uh, is there but you know science fiction fantasy mixed with science fiction and I didn't think it was gonna work and um, when the first Thor movie came out I felt that my uh, my assessment was justified. It was not a good movie. Um, and uh, I almost wish that I was doing that movie. I'm, this is actually, I haven't announced it yet, but I'm sure if you saw the title, you know that this particular episode is about Thor 2. Um, but I'll, I'll get to why we're doing that in a minute. But Thor 1 was, uh, it was, it was problematic, uh, very problematic. And in part, and I could wax, you know, I could do, 20, 30 minutes on why there's problems with it, but 
probably the reason all of the branching conflicts and problems that exist in the first Thor movie primarily, in my mind, are rooted with the fact that they try to forget about the fantastical, the fantasy nature of Thor and instead try to mask it in science fiction. Um, under the old premise that, uh, the old quote, I forget who said it, that uh, any technology from, uh, you know, that's deep, deep in the future that would be brought back to a primitive uh, people would would be indistinguishable from magic. Um, and so they try to use that premise in order to work with the Thor um, uh, mythos. And I, I'm a little... <sighs> I'm a little unconvinced that that was the right way to go. Um, the problem with introducing Thor and his mythos as science fiction is that there are rules. There are rules to science fiction, how things work and how they don't work and the limitations of the technology. And we as viewers uh, impart those rules upon what we see on the film and that creates expectations from us and that's how right the scenes can you know generate tension as we know what can and cannot be done um as a quick tangent um this is one of the reasons well let me let me let me back up um and that would be good sci use of science fiction to create these create the science fiction premise and then establish with that the restrictions of it and then we in the audience can sort of, uh, you know, experience the drama that the characters are going through because we understand what is possible and what isn't. And so when a character talks about the imminent danger or threat of this or that, uh, we understand. Um, the problem is, is that Thor isn't science fiction. Um, even though they want it, they say that it is, it, it isn't. It's, it's completely fantastical. It's a fantasy. It's, it's, uh, it's magic. And they would be better served just treating it like such. Um, and when you introduced magic into a movie, there's no grounding for an audience member. We can't relate to what's going on. We can't, in our mind, go back to a place in our past where, where we remember, oh, well, you know, if I, I remember being in a situation like that, if I had just had this particular spell, I would have cast it and everything would have been fine, but I didn't think about it, you know, like, because I was under some other spell. And, you know, like, it, it, there's no um, way to relate. This is actually one of the reasons why I really cannot get into any of the Harry Potter stuff is because Harry Potter, um, all of the problems that he gets into are because of magic fac fascinations mechanations whatever are magic and uh, magical in nature and the way he gets out of them are magical in nature and so there's no way for me to like relate to that and be like i and and, and be a part of that experience um and thor was a problem you know the first thor film kind of suffered from that and uh but that brings us or me to talk about the second thor film um i there's so much to talk about from a, an editing, a retooling of the Marvel Cinematic Universe that it's, there's really no good where, place to start. Um, Marvel's approach to this to this material uh, when they started making these uh, this franchise movie is in one sense highly applauded, uh, should be highly applauded but in another sense should be taken with a little bit of um, 
I don't know quite what the word is, but a lowering of expectations. The bar that they set for their movies uh, is lower. I think is arbitrarily low, um, or is set lower than what it could be. The first Iron Man movie set a really high bar, and all of the other movies, in a sense, I, in my the way I see it, have, have still need to sort of lean on how good that first Iron Man movie is. If if the movie if the franchise tried to start off with the Incredible Hulk, it wouldn't have done as well as it has. If this franchise had started off with the original Thor, it would not have done as well as it has. Um, or, or even the Captain America movie, which should have been much better than it was. Um, these, none of the, not all these movies really are are tied to how well and how well established the, that universe is set up in the first Iron Man movie. And you can show people Thor or Incredible Hulk or Captain America. And they're they're the uh, if they're unfamiliar with the rest, and they're a, I, I sense that their liking liking of those movies are going to be like, well, it's good, it's okay. They're not going to be high, heightened and go like, yeah, I really like that. This is a great film, that kind of thing. And I think the reason why people attribute that quality to those other movies is because those other standalone movies is because they sort of. I think there's a part of Iron Man, the first Iron Man, that sort of continues to elevate that material. And Thor benefits the least uh, from that because it's not based in the world that Iron Man's in. I mean, it looks like it is, but it really isn't. It's it's a fantastical, it's a magical world. And magic needs to be treated, the, the kind of fantasy that Thor has said it needs to be treated differently um, than how it's being treated in the MCU. And uh, so the Thor movies, I think, will indefinitely be uh, lackluster films. And the first Thor movie played to that, and Thor 2 played to that. And, uh, but Thor 2, by the time Thor 2 came out, there was more material to work with. And it, it, I kept thinking, well, they, pr- they should have learned their lesson by now, and there's more of an established universe to kind of live and breathe in, and... Perhaps, you know, all of the BS that we'd have to swallow in order to make the Thor, first Thor movie acceptable. Maybe I sort of take that in, and so there's less BS I have to um, overcome in order to enjoy Thor 2. This was my expectation when I first went to see Thor 2, and um, none of that really helped. There's not... The film can't seem to get grounded, and the there's a feeling when you watch it that you're waiting for something to start happening, even though a lot of stuff is happening. One scene after the next, there's things happening. The plot is moving forward, mostly. Um, but it's not grounded in anything, so we're, as an audience member, we're just kind of floating in the air, not really caring about what's going on. Um, certainly plenty of missed opportunities. And um, so... As a fan editor, I, I remember watching Thor 2 thinking um, this... I, I remember thinking that I don't think that there's enough here to do anything with. It's going to be, uh, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, I'd say Thor 2 is a 5. Um, it certainly has some... Uh, some. There's enough kind of uh, juice in the movie to kind of keep you interested from one scene to the next. Uh, to propel you along. It's not really propelling. It's more like dragging. It's dragging you along. There's a lot of resistance to kind of move move forward, but you, you know, whether it's the visuals or the, you know, the, 
the the being in that world that sort of sucks you in a little bit it it does drag you forward through it so i can't give it a lower rating than that but i i felt like a fan edit of this movie is not gonna you're not gonna be able to turn this five into an eight or a nine i think the best you're gonna do is maybe a six you know there's probably four or five minutes of footage that you probably cut out you know worth of small edits and trims here and there of fat that might turn this into a better film but i certainly not worth the effort and energy to go through the process i, I really don't think the um, end result would be something i would be particularly proud of myself however there is a fan edit that came out by a guy named uh, tm2yc uh, which is short for take me to your cinema He's a fan editor. Don't done a lot of a lot of work, uh, a lot of different fan edits, and this he did a fan edit of Thor two six months ago, and a year ago. I forget how long it's been, but I remember it won the uh, fan edit of the month at the time, which means at least some other fan editors thought that it did a pretty good job. And I was curious to see um, how well it did. Um, you know, oftentimes the success of a fan edit is not because the fan edit itself is a great movie. But it's that it's elevated uh, another piece of work from something much better than it was. So, like, you know, if you take a, a two and bring it up to a six, that difference is highly praised. Those are really strong fan edits. But at the end, you're still with a six, you know? It's hard to take people outside who have never seen the original and go, you got to watch this. And then people go, ah, it feels like a six to me. And I was like, yeah, but you don't know how bad it was before. Um, so that that difference is something people in the fan edit community kind of uh, appreciate that people outside not so much um, and I didn't think that uh, Thor 2 at the end would be digestible from people who haven't seen the first one and maybe I'm right I don't know um, I'm recording this uh, after having uh, rewatched Thor 2 in order to catch myself up on this particular episode but I haven't watched uh, uh, <laughs> I don't want to say take me to your cinema over and over again. So I should say TM. I haven't seen TM's uh, uh, edit le- yet. After I finish this part, of course, I'll watch it and then comment on on the second half of this uh, recording. Um, but I'm stalling. Uh, I should uh, get into Thor 2, what works, what doesn't uh, as a movie, and then kind of go over, kind of wax how, how maybe you could probably fix this into uh, something more uh, more entertaining, more gripping. One of the problems with this movie is that it has about, I think I counted four different opening sequences. Um, the first opening, opening sequence is a voiceover by Odin talking about this long, dark history before, uh, before ta- space and time. There was darkness and there was a race of people called the Dark Elves. And when light was brought to the universe, the Dark Elves sought to extinguish that light through this uh, artifact which is is described as the ether it's um it's really just a special effect it's a red kind of liquidy thing that kind of floats in the air um and uh 5000 years ago uh when the nine worlds were going to overlap uh this dark elf malekith was going to release the ether so that all the nine worlds would be infected and it would ultimately destroy them uh, nine universes would be destroyed they will destroy them and uh, all things in existence would go back to darkness. Uh, his motivation for doing that, I'm not really explained. You would figure the Dark Elf would be, uh, 
you know, consumed in this uh, as well, sort of a mutually assured destruction. Why they're really particularly interested in doing this is not really, uh, you know, he's just evil, evil incarnate, I guess. Um, and so the whole voice, it requires a voiceover to explain all of this stuff. Um, but actually, uh, there's a, another part in the movie where this plot is sort of explained to the human character, Natalie Portman, Jane Foster, I believe her character is, and uh, by Odin. And it's like, well, if you're going to explain the movie to one character, why can't we just keep that and just uh, use that as the explanation sequence? They do the same thing in Superman. Um, uh, uh, what's it called? Superman, the latest Superman film um, with H Henry Cavill. That that starts with a voiceover sequence that in the halfway through the movie there's an explanation to a human character about here's the history. It's like well um, they do the same thing. I, one of my fan edits that I did is Oblivion, which starts off with a voiceover sequence which explains uh, how the world is what it is. But then uh, halfway through the movie there's a scene where the characters are explaining it to somebody who doesn't know how it is. And I, I don't like these voiceovers like that. I want I if if uh, if I'm going to be going on this journey with a human character that learns about what's going on, I want to learn with that person um, with that character so this voiceover is an example of a uh, basically a screenplay that doesn't trust its audience to sort of figure it out um, so that's uh, a weakness uh, following that opening sequence is a different opening sequence where Loki is walked into uh, to Odin Loki is the um, the main bad guy from the first Thor movie and ultimately a bad guy in the Avengers um, uh, and he is captured at the end of such movie and the end of the Avengers. I think I guess Thor 2 must have come out just after the first Avengers movie. Uh, so he's captured and brought uh, in handcuffs to Odin, who locks him in this sort of magically powered jail cell. Um, so that's the second opening. And the third opening uh, is this sequence where Thor is fighting on some planet of some kind, and it's just the end of some battle, and he and his compadres are sort of, you know, defeating nameless people. And they're, it's one of these fights where there's absolutely no danger or threat. Everything is kind of a joke because they're just, you know, super, superhuman, magically induced, uh, you know, people. You can't, there's no sympathy, uh, or you can't empathize with the characters for sure. Uh, Thor defeats this giant rock monster, everybody, um, in a comical sense and everybody puts down their weapons Thor goes back to Odin and then the fourth opening is uh, Jane on Earth having a, a rather humorous but uh, date with a I forget the actor's name I'm sure others would shame me for not knowing him but he's a comedic a British I think he's British although his accent might be Irish I'm not sure I'm really bad with accents um, in a dinner sequence where she's obviously not interested in the date and but the plot actually begins in that scene because it's interrupted by her intern, uh, who is pretty humorous throughout the film. Unfortunately, that's probably not the right feeling you need. Uh, but she comes in to tell tell her there's an anomaly nearby. Uh, the age-old anomaly is the uh, the greatest uh, tool in movie f uh, screenwriting to get uh, basically insert some BS into the plot. Uh, anyway, this anomaly, uh, so she's taken from her, this is, and this anomaly thing, this scene with Jane at the, this really should be the opening of the movie, um, the, as I see it, and she, because what happens is she, she, she follows this anomaly, which is nearby, 
uh, somewhere in London. Even though she's American, she's in London for whatever reason. And uh, it's in this, like, parking garage thing. And some kids have found this, like, space portal where you drop things into it. And all of a sudden it falls from another area. But, but then this is where I'm talking about, like, where the rules... Well, we can't get grounded in... The, first off, a movie that has four uh, openings and the fourth one is the following the characters we're supposed to be uh, interested in, that's, that's rough. Uh, as an audience member, you want to inter- be introduced to the movie uh, to your main character right away and be with them. Exceptions aside, like Psycho, for example. But um, the, you want to follow this character, and so when you have all these openings beforehand, you kind of have to like... All right, backstory, backstory, backstory. Okay, now I understand what's going on. It would be much more captivating if we just started with Jane. And she's at a dinner, and it's uh, this dinner date, and it's not going well. Then she's interrupted, and then she's investigating this anomaly. And then by she gets, it's, it's, not, it's not handled correctly, but she gets sucked into a portal, which takes her to the ether. Um, the opening sequence with the Dark Elves, when they first tried to release the... Um, uh, the ether to destroy the war- uh, destroy the universe or destroy existence. Uh, they were uh, they were defeated in the ether instead because it can't be destroyed. It was instead hidden uh, deep within this cavern. And so when she goes through this portal, she ends up next to the ether. And she's just, it would be fascinating f- to, for us to be with her and not know what the ether is, just like she wouldn't know what the ether is. Uh, but the screenplay doesn't really trust us to make those judgments and feel like we're going to be on board, so they have already explained it to us beforehand. She gets, she touches the ether. The ether jumps into her skin. Um, why? How? Who knows? Uh, in the op- opening voiceover, there's certainly nothing to suggest that that's how ether works or that's how it you know transfers itself. But whatever, it goes to her skin, and she's now part of it. And uh, and then she walks back through the portal and ends up back on Earth, but a lot of time has passed, and sort of the, anou- the, the ether transferring to her sort of triggers the reawakening of the Dark Elves, and, uh, uh, and uh, Heimgall, no, and Thor is just kind of, after this battle that he was in, is kind of ruminating with uh, Stringer Bell, um, Heimgall, I think he plays in this movie. It's uh, Idris Elba, or Idris Elba, whatever his character is. To me, he's, uh, he's, he's always going to be a stringer bell. You should watch The Wire. If you haven't seen it, go watch The Wire. Um, he's ruminating on Jane Foster and uh, Natalie Portman's character, and Heimgall goes, I can't see her. And so he's, he gets nervous, and he goes to Earth to find her, and now she's infected with the, uh, the ether, and he, uh, she's sick, so he takes her back to um, takes her back to Asgard to be looked into. Um, I've skipped over what is probably the most interesting dynamic in the movie, which is never explored, or at least given just the most cursory introduction and wax over that it's it's kind of it's kind of uh, shameful. But the most interesting dynamic in the whole Thor thing is his relationship with Jane Foster. Is that and this relationship with this other girl who's this warrior lady, and I, I wish I knew her name. I think the actress's name who plays her is like um, uh, Jamie Alexander. I think that's who it is. Uh, let me see if I can look up real quick her character's name. Sif, S-I-F, Sif. Um, Sif likes Thor, and I think Thor would like Sif if it wasn't for Natalie Portman. 
but or for uh, for Jane Foster, Thor. Uh, but Thor is a god for all intents and purposes, um, and he would outlive Jane Foster a hundred times over. Um, and whereas Sif would grow and age appropriately with Thor. And this dynamic that Thor, who has probably already lived many, many centuries, if not millennia, before meeting Jane, who's only been, whose only existence has only been around for you know, a couple decades, um, what he would find fascinating or interesting with her, and how does he really expect the future to unroll with her? And how is it inappropriate for him in high royalty to suggest that he would get with a mortal, so to speak, who would die so quickly uh, when there's this other person, Sif, who is also going to live for a long time, is seems to be uh, noble and hot, <laughs> which really the only two qualifications for uh, that should be qualifications in this world uh, for uh, Thor to get with, who also likes Thor, of course, and um, and where what I want to see and really want to experience is the only the only thing I really like about this movie is uh, is her. I want to see. I want to hear her inner dialogue. How can it that she, he's going to want to be with this girl that's going to be so so fleeting? When I'm here to stay, and the dynamics between the longevity of how they're how the Asgardians live, and how that what that means to intermingling with the humans, I, I find it fascinating. They should have had more discussions like that, where it's like, why don't we interact with the humans? Because because our life scales timelines are so different that us interact uh, the Asgardians interacting with the humans is does a disservice to the humans because we don't appreciate things the way they do and they don't appreciate things the way we do and it just causes turmoil and war and conflict and blah 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 and these would have been really that that could have been a core premise of why uh how this these this fantastical element sort of coexists with humans but then doesn't by virtue of their lifespans and then that would make Thor's Thor and Jane's uh, relationship much more interesting. Unfortunately, it's like I said, it's given the most cursory of um, uh, of uh, a brush over in this in this and the other films, uh, which is unfortunate because that's some really rich uh, subtext to work with. But anyway, uh, he takes Jane back to Asgard. They try to like figure out what's going on with her, uh, and then the Blood Elves are seeking the ether, so they come in and they actually attack Asgard, and they're pretty badass, I guess, and they blow up things. And and uh, in that process, uh, Thor's mother is killed, um, which is probably the best um, cinematic storytelling in the in the in the in this in this particular movie. Um, is the burial of the mother? Um, it's pretty effective. Um, uh, although there's not a whole lot of really interesting tricks being used. It's just, you know, choral music, slow, uh, burial at sea kind of thing, which we've seen in other movies. It's, it's just handled for, for this kind of movie. It's handled with a little more delicacy than it probably deserves. And that helps it, that, 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 that does elevate it. Um, but of course, with the death of the mother, then the black, the dark elves are shown to be, it's supposed to indicate like, these are how dangerous they are you know we need all the help we can get to kill him and all the help we can get to kill him uh means we got to take loki out of prison and you know loki's a bad dude but his mother died so he's happy to 
kind of get on board. And they play with this uh, notion a few times. Oh, they go back to it several times, actually, where they do we trust Loki, don't we trust Loki, um, which is appropriate. Um, unf- unfortunately, the... Um, it just... it. This is supposed to be... This is another big problem with these, uh, the, with the MCU in general, is that we're trying, they're trying to tell bigger, give, give us bigger and badder situations, but there's always this um, narrowing down of obstacles for the heroes to overcome, and it's always really tied to one person. Uh, in in as good as Guardians of the Galaxy is, at the end, it's just them killing that one bad guy. Um, as good as, uh, you know, even Iron Man or Incredible Hulk, if, if you want to use that as a good movie, uh, it just comes down to killing the one bad guy. Um, and this Thor 2 falls in the same pitfall, where it's just, let's just kill the one bad guy. And it's a, such a small scale that in order to get a large army together in order to win uh they don't need that all they need is they they, they don't the problem is small per se and so they only get loki out they don't they don't have to fashion an army they don't have to uh convince you know a million people to ride out with him there's no rallying of the troops like braveheart um you know giving his speech to his comrades and one, the Lord of the Ring. One of the reasons the Lord of the Rings movies work is not because they have to overcome, uh, you know, a bad guy with a giant mace. It's because um, they have to overcome all of the hurdles to to get uh, between Frodo and uh, and and um, the volcano. Um, it, putting the putting all of the problems on one individual just. From a storytelling point, it focuses too narrowly uh, what the bad guys need, what the good guys need to overcome, and so that's why when they bring get Loki, Loki's the only thing they need. Uh, it would be interesting if they needed Loki and an entire army of bad guys. Like, what if they brought in all the bad guys who are who are responsible for invading New York in the uh, in the Avengers movie? Now that might be interesting, you know. Like, bring in another series of, of baddies that need to be brought in together, you know. But anyway, uh, it's a it's a it's a, a small scale kind of approach, and that's also what, what, why the first Thor movie suffered. Is that the only thing that was really in danger in the first Thor movie was this kind of like mm, town in New Mexico that had a gas station that blew up? I mean, it was it wasn't a whole lot at risk. Um, so they get Loki, and uh, which looks like a little bit of a, a playing with the audience, where we we don't quite know what their plan is and. Uh, did Loki betray Thor? Did he not? I don't know. But then we do. It's a little. It's a little cat and mouse with whether or not the audience is, you know, on board with Loki and whether or not he's going to or will or did betray uh, Thor. Um, and that's a that's an interesting plot uh, tool. And it's there's actually some creative storytelling there with going back and forth between re- getting Loki and then cutting back to the conversation of should we get Loki? Um, I do like that little that little exchange that happens there. They get uh, um, uh, that 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 piece of editing anyway. Uh, but anyway, the 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 attempt with uh, Loki and um, Thor on the Malekith doesn't work. Uh, he gets the ether from Jane Foster, and then he goes to Earth because the planets are about to line—not uh, the planets, but the universes are about to line. 
And uh, and then they're about to align, and Thor sweeps in and hits him with his hammer. Go go figure. Uh, in order to stop him from uh, releasing the ether uh, in that exact moment when these universes overlap. And uh, those last two or three sentences, what I just said, I just covered the last 35 minutes, 40 minutes of the movie. So uh, that was a little bit quick, but I wanted to get around to wrapping this up. I don't want to, it's, 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 I, when I do these things, I, I don't want to just go through, you know, plot point by plot point just to say, hey, I, you know, flex my muscles that I remembered the movie. Um, that's not what it's for. What I want to do is talk about what can work and what can't and what can be improved upon and where the pitfalls are. And, and the pitfalls of this is just they're so broad in scope. Uh, Small-scale bad guys. Um, this And let me go back to actually how I started this, this thing off because really when it comes to pitfalls of this movie, it's the impossible ability for the audience member to be grounded in this universe because it's all based in fantasy the portals and how they work and the gravity and and all the the scientific techno babble that's trying to be used to explain it and the um the uh the ether itself uh which is just some arbitrary evil thing um the uh the third act, which is supposed to be where we're the most invested into this story, is where all of this stuff gets taken. It's like there's a scene, like they bring out these little pod, uh, not pod, but like these poles with like scientific stuff on it, and they kind of throw them around Greenwich, England, because that's kind of where they expect the, these con- this convergence of the universes to happen. And how they work is like they it's not explained. Like they're just controlled by some like RC. A thing where people turn some dials, and all of a sudden they create like gravity portals of some kind that suck people up and move people around and take them from one you know planet to another, and it's just it's absolutely chaotic. And yet the characters are acting like they kind of know what's going on, and they can adjust the dials and they can make things happen. Like yeah, I meant for that to happen. Um, but we as the audience member going, this is this is insane. It's not insane like you know, uh, like in a good way, not like at a, um, you know, watching the, uh, the, the, the armies, uh, you know, attack each other in Lord of the Rings where it's like, damn, it's insane. No, it's insane. Like we can't get any grounding. There's, there's no rules. Like why does the, oh yeah, it just creates this, this hole, this portal that people fall through. It doesn't seem to affect the ground. Why doesn't the ground get sucked up and, you know, pieces of the earth are kind of, uh, uh it's, it's just, over and over and over again, every scene, every shot, everything that is used to kind of like show the characters doing something and you know overcoming problems is 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 in this fan. They might as well be have. They might as well have magic wands. There's the, the sci-fi component of it should just be thrown away. They should just have little magic wands because that's basically what's going on here. And uh, well, anyway. Um, it looks like uh, Loki didn't actually die earlier in the film. Uh, he faked his death. Thor thought he was dead. And at the end, it looks like he is... Although they'll probably say that he imprisoned him. It looks like he has killed Odin and taken his throne. And is just l- looking like he's Odin. Like he can l- take on these different appearances. Kind of like a illusory kind of thing. Um, and throughout all of that, there's just no, 
there's no real conflict. We don't really feel like anybody's lives are really in danger. The death of of Thor's mother comes closer to portraying that than anything else. Um, the Thor's you know go first go to weapon and last go to strategy of of overcoming anything is the hammer, and that's kind of how um, he he overcomes this. So there's no real surprise there. Um, and I, I'm kind of left leaning in my seat going, I, I don't know what else you're going to do. You've, you've committed to this style of, of storytelling where uh, you've, you've taken, you've set up the audience where they cannot participate logically with what's going to happen from one scene to the next. And then how do you go back on that and put them in a place of, of logic and reason? Um, I'm not sure you can. And I, I'm not sure that cutting out some of the more arbitrary points of dialogue or removing a scene here or there or moving this from that, um, maybe even, you know, rearranging the opening sequences and, uh, and whatnot, um, the opening, uh, like I said, the opening, the four openings. I, I don't know how well this is going to end up. I, I know I, I said earlier it's going to be turning a five to a six. I don't know. It might be a five back to another five, just a different five in a different format. Um, I, I'm I'm interested to see what uh, TM has done with this, um, but at the same time, I'm skeptical. I'm, you know, I was skeptical about Indiana Jones four, and uh, the but that turned out to be fantastic. I, I was very impressed. I was skeptical about. Um, the the James Bond uh, to die another day. I was skeptical about that, but then that turned out well. So, I, in one sense, that sort of skepticism that I have about whether or not this is actually going to work is the reason why I'd, I want this to do an episode on this because I've been proved wrong before, and I'd love to be proved wrong again. Um, I, we will see. Um, I, we'll, we're going to see. All right. So anyway. Um, this is the we're gonna watch Thor two uh, from T M two Y C. I think he called it the Hard Forged edition. Um, uh, take me to your cinemas fan edit of Thor two. That's what we're gonna watch, and uh, we'll talk about that on the flip side. Thank you for listening. And we are back. I just finished watching um, the Hard Forge edition from TM2YC, Take Me to Your Cinema. And um, is this an improvement over the original? Yes. Is it the most kind of improvement over the original that is possible? If it isn't, it's probably, it's really close. Um... There, my concern from the first part of, you know, that I mentioned in the first half of this is that I don't, the, the real problems with this movie are, are so fundamental that I'm not sure cleaning up a few lines of dialogue and moving this and that is really going to polish this thing so that people sit back and go, wow, I'm glad I watched that. Um, Take Me to Your Cinema has done, or TM has done a good job going as far as you can in that direction and there's probably another edit or two that could still push it you know keep it there um but to be honest like i said before this is a five that a really good edit's going to pull it to a six 
Um, that's what this is. It's a very strong six with maybe a, uh, depending on your mood you're in, you might say it's a seven, but it's a six. And I, I want to applaud TM for the, for making the effort and giving it, it seems to have given, it seems to have gotten the polish that, that, that it could be the best polish it could have. Um, but unfortunately I think this is one of those incidences where the source material is just not rich enough and not strong enough to be uh, to really push it into the you know to be in, uh, an eight or a nine or a ten um, but let's talk about the changes that he did make um, I talked uh, originally at the beginning uh, the first half about those four beginning opening sequences and I mentioned the voiceover sequence being the weakest of the four, and sure enough, uh, TM uh, thought the same thing I did. Instead of opening with the uh, with the voiceover sequence introducing the deep past with the dark elves and Malekith and whatnot, um, it starts off with the, the Loki scene, Loki being brought before Odin and being sentenced uh, to his prison. Um, much better. Uh, in fact... I need to wax on a little bit longer about this. Um, it's not that that particular edit was, you know, radical um, in, in, in making that change um, because it's an easy, it's an obvious, it's an obvious cut. However, I was quite surprised at what kind of effect that had. Um, I knew it was going to improve the movie, but it improved it more than, really more than I expected. Um, what happens here's here's what happens is you know it's kind of thinking back on this here's here's what happens when when the movie starts off with this voiceover and it introduces the dark elves and it introduces odin who is narrating this voiceover talking about the convergence and talking about the uh ether and talking about the threat that the dark elves conveyed there's this sense that this is ominous that it's inevitable, that it's an, it, its importance is going to be realized shortly. And when the plot starts to unfold as the convergence becomes starts to actually happen, as the ether is sort of sucked into uh, Jane's body, there's a sense as an audience member from the first time you're watching, it's like, okay, well, yeah, this is the next coming of events. The Odin certainly should be on top of this, and the convergence is going to be happening anytime soon. Heimel's talking about it. Stringer, Stringer's talking about it. Like, um, so everybody should be everybody should be on guard, and you get a sense that it's not a big reveal. There's no suspense that we're just kind of waiting for this convergence thing to happen. However, when you remove that opening voiceover, all that is taken out. Taken out, um, and that scene that I had mentioned in the first half does play so much better in which Jane is sort of sucked into the um, gravitational anomaly that sort of puts her in the same room with the ether where she's utterly confused as to what it is and you as an audience member uh, are 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 with her in that moment of not of confusion so much so that and you follow like that the, there's a mystery component and and as soon as the it's uh, the blood I call it, it looks like blood I mean it kind of looks like a ripoff from something from blade uh, from blade uh, with the blood demons, you know, with this flying everywhere. But anyway, it's ether. When the ether goes into Jane's body, um, that triggers the awakening of the Dark Elves. And you get a sense, okay, now we have things moving. And for the first time, things are kind of moving and moving. And 
when you watch this edit, there's a momentum that builds up. Like it's starting to crank. Like we're going, we're starting at zero. We're going to 10 miles an hour, going to 15. Whereas in the original, you're sort of, you start at 30 and then you back down to five and you're kind of waiting. Okay, we already know where this is going, but let's, let's, let's speed this up. When the, uh, when Odin, and he does, he does what I, I, I suggest doing is that when Odin actually does explain, well, I don't know if I explicitly said this, but um, when Odin explains the history of the Dark Elves and the importance of the Aether when he realizes that it's coursing through her veins, then you start to see some of that voiceover pick up from that was originally cut from the first part. And that is extremely well uh, credits to TM on how he inserted that voiceover and those and the visuals along with it as he's um, talking to... Uh, um, Thor and Jane about it. It's very seamlessly done. It's it's very well done. Um, but the point is, is that as a viewer, this is like halfway through the movie, uh, well, and a good chunk into the second act, I guess, really. And you're you there's a there's a sense of 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 of, of momentum. You're with the the characters are discovering this for the first time. You're discovering it for the first time, and as soon as they discover it, the dark elves have you know are cloaking their ships and coming in and attacking Asgard. Um, that sense of urgency uh, and momentum, like I said, is not there in the first one in the fir- in the original movie, all because of that voiceover. Uh, it's it's so strange to think that 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 would have such a lasting impact, but it does. Um, however, whatever whatever benefit can be milked from having that opening voiceover removed is lost, you know, by about this time in the movie, about this time in the picture, certainly by the halfway point. And um, it's really, it's, it's, I found it compelling to see how much that have changed things. Um, I, I've done a movie, I've done, I've mentioned my Oblivion edit, and Oblivion starts off with a voiceover, and I have removed that, and I'm curious because as you watch, as you do edits, you kind of lose objectivity um, to that. So I don't know how well, uh, how much, how much intrigue and how much that momentum that helped the film. I know it did help it, but I don't know the the scale. Um, I didn't think it. I thought it was good. I thought it was a, a good improvement to remove the voiceover, but I didn't know how good. And I'm wondering now if it's more la- long-lasting than I would have considered, only because I realized with this voiceover being removed, it, it did have a very significant, long-lasting, positive effect. Uh, because you start to unfold, you, you get to unfold with the plot as the characters do. Um, so uh, that was a smart choice. Glad he did it. I would have done the same. Um, some other things that I noticed that were that were cut out. Um, in, in the opening dialogue between Loki and his mother before he's locked up, it's the opening scene of the movie, some, there's some lines of dialogue that are removed. Um, up, I, I agree with those, those edits. They, they made it a little sh- uh, better conversation. Loki is less, um, uh, I guess, Joker-y. Um, the whole scene feels a lot less uh, hammy than it is in the original um, even the line of dialogue where God, where Odin says to him that uh, we we die, he says they're you know they're they're mortal, they die, and Odin says, well, we die too, our lives, you know, whatever. And the original uh, Loki says something to the effect of, well, we die, sure, give or take five thousand years, uh, and whereas uh, implying, of course, that the humans only live you know a century at the most. 
So, uh, but that line is removed, so we don't get a sense of how long um, these people actually live. Um, but we do know that they die. So I guess there's kind of this... By removing that line of dialogue, you get a sense that they... Like, it's weird because obviously some Asgardians are older than others, so you do get a sense that they age. But you don't... Without that, fi- that line with the 5,000, you don't, you don't know how long they age. And I like that cut. I liked, I liked that being a little bit more mysterious, and you can um, believe that they've been there for a long, long... You can, that they exist for, you know, m- much longer than we, uh, we think. I also noticed that uh, the comic duo of uh, Kat Dennings, who plays the, the female intern, along with the other guy who plays the other intern... <coughs> excuse me. Um, his intro is cut out, so... Um, that that's one of the few edits I didn't particularly agree with, only because when he is, when that first little moment when he does come and come out of the car, um, there's a it's a little bit jarring. Uh, you don't know who he is and why he's there, that kind of thing. Um, I I know it's kind of it's going for a, a joke when on his reveal. That's probably not the best way to handle it, but I'm I'm not sure that that is worse than what. Uh, than uh, TM's choice of saving that uh, his reveal for a little bit later. Um, there is incidental dialogue uh, throughout the film that is cut out, and I, honestly, it's I, I'm a I I, I notice one a two or thing two or three things, but you know to be perfectly honest, I can't really articulate them over and over and over again. There, it's I I. I sort of got lost in um, in uh, the actual film and stopped and started missing. I think I started missing some of the things that were cut. Um, the The only really big change that was added to this edit that was not in the original is that Loki, for all intents and purposes, Loki dies. Uh, in the original, you know, he, I guess he kind of fakes his death and then, uh, masks, uh, using his illusion magic or whatever is able to look like a guard who then tells Odin that, um, presumably that Loki is dead. Um, and then at the end when, um, when Odin has his final speech to Thor who says that I I refuse the throne, I want to (laughs) go, uh, chill out with Natalie Portman, um, it is revealed that that Odin is actually um, uh, is actually Loki in disguise. Um, I have to say, one of the things I never liked, I didn't like about the original and having the that be Loki, is that he talks that that scene has so much more importance if it's coming from Odin, and 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 the the exchange like it really cheapens. When you find out that it's Loki, it really cheapens how that conversation went um, because it's an important dialogue for Odin and Thor to share and to know that it's that it was just kind of undercut, that it was just kind of he was faking it. It doesn't feel right. Um, I, I like that. So what he does in the original, in, in this edit, what TM does in this edit is he doesn't reveal, he, doesn't have, he cuts out the Loki reveal. So it is Odin talking to him and that's, that's all there is to it. Um, I like that. It, it solidifies that Loki is dead, that his death was honorable, that they believe it's honorable, um, and uh, Odin and Thor get to share that moment that is now untainted. 
Uh, it's not a huge change. It it's it's a it's a nice it's a nice good polish to have at the end of the at the end of the film for from an editing perspective of what you know from what was to what is. And uh, I I have I I like that choice for that reason. Unfortunately, um, uh, it, it does kind of mar this idea because surely uh, Loki is going to come back in other Marvel incarnations, uh, certainly in other Thor uh, films. So it's under the umbrella of hey, I'm going to take out my Thor disc, my Thor two Dark World disc, and I'm going to replace it with TM's edit. Um, it does kind of ruin that just a little bit because if you know if this is your go-to version of Thor two, and then you watch a later uh, Marvel movie, and all of a sudden there's Loki, there's there's a sense that the continuity is gone, and I I understand that that's not fair. That's not fair to TM because he's he's making his movie um, be. Uh, autonomous. Uh, he, he he has no responsibility to make his edit fit in the MCU uh, of whatever comes out. Um, so that's a little bit of an unfair jab. However, it's it's I think it's perfectly f uh, reasonable to say why some people might might have a disagreement with that particular edit. I agree. The scenes work better. Uh, the Odin the Odin Thor scene works better without the Loki reveal. Um, but uh, you know it, uh, it. You know you can't please everybody, and those are the. Uh, that's the kind of thing people might complain about. Um, this edit, quality-wise, is top-notch. Uh, the audio is great. The um, video is fantastic. As far as replacing uh, uh, your Blu-ray or DVD, um, certainly this is a contender for that. Um, but I. I you know, it's kind of weird. Like, this is one of the first times that I've watched an edit and have come back to record this half of, uh, you know, this half of the episode and be a little lost for words. Um, a lot of this, uh, a lot of this movie is, uh, I believe, unedited. Uh, you know, large sections of this movie are exactly what was in the original. And... There were, there were times where I I kept I, I found like a, myself catching a moment or two or three, of moments that could have been tweaked and could have been could have been given a little bit better polish, um, like uh, one that's coming to mind right now is at the beginning when they when uh, uh, Jane and her compadres meet up with the kids who are throwing things into the. Uh, portal and not knowing and you know seeing as they fall to the ground and then come from the sky and so forth so the what happens in the movie is this kid drops like a bottle uh full of liquid and it falls to the ground but instead of hitting the ground it gets sucked into some portal like thing and then uh and then and then it comes from the sky and then he catches it and uh there's sort of a wonderment about it, and so Jane wants to do the same. So she takes like a like a soda can or whatnot and throws it into the portal, uh, but it doesn't come out the top. And there's this. So then she looks across this little space and sees one of the kids, and she goes, "Where'd it go?" And the kid responds by saying, uh, "Sometimes they come back, sometimes they don't," or something like that. And like that that line of dialogue where it says, "Where did it go?" that line could be cut out uh, because all she has to do 
you know, it falls, it doesn't come back. So we as audience members, we know uh, what happened. We're asking ourselves what happened. And we know the characters are going to ask what happened. So we, didn't, we don't need to ask what happened. All we need to do is have Natalie Portman look at the kid with a look of confusion on her face, which is there. The, the, that look is there. And then all you have to do is cut to the kid saying sometimes it comes back and sometimes it doesn't. The kid hears what he's saying and uh, what she's saying with just the look. And um, that's all you need. And so that kind of polish where it, it's, it's one little line of dialogue it it's not going to change the plot. It's not going to make this. It's not going to turn the scene like from a five to an eight, like I was saying before. Uh, but it's just a little bit of a polish, and it's it's you do enough of that, and all of a sudden, like you don't really notice that those lines of dialogue are, are removed. All you do, all you notice is that there's like there's an engagement that's in, that's happening. Um, I'm really fascinated in editing and film filmmaking altogether about how the mind gets engaged. Uh, in in these in this experience and in, in watching a movie, and and uh, playing around with the fan editing stuff, I get to I I don't know why or how it all works. I just know that some tweaks here and there do work, and uh, perhaps in this case, what I'm describing is that the mind, when in the original, if she says what happened, all of a sudden our engagement kind of takes us take goes a couple steps back like we're not engaged we we have to you know be like i said before we have to be dragged along by the characters as opposed to being with them and maybe leading the charge in some sense of how this narrative is going to unfold um and so when they when she asks where where to go we get just just ever so slightly disengaged and uh and the if, if if a movie just has lots and lots and lots of these little lines of dialogue that just kind of kind of keep you from you know using your brain to keep up with what's happening, then um, then y- y- you don't you don't really feel like uh, like you're invested. Um, now this effect can be used in the wrong way, where the characters aren't saying a whole lot, and there's a lot of uh, knowing looks from one to the other, and then if you add a complicated plot on top of it, there's there's too there, it can be too too much engagement or too much is asked of the audience to keep up. Um, my, it's funny I'm saying this, and I think the biggest example that I can think of of a movie that does that off top of my hung, the top of my tongue, is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It's a it's an, an extremely engaging movie in the way that I'm talking about, where you constantly have to you know, keep your brain affixed as to what is going on screen and having to put pieces together that the film is not providing, but it's implying. Um, however, I think that the, in that particular movie, the effort it takes to do that um, is a little lost because the, the third act reveal is doesn't feel like it's worth the effort. You might as well just kind of sit back, tune out, and wait for the characters to explain it because it's keeping yourself engaged is, is, is just too much work. Um, another film that I feel like is that way is Synecdoche, New York is, is just, you have to be constantly thinking and trying to interpret and your mind is constantly acting and you have to ask yourself after the movie is over, was that worth it? Um, I didn't think so. Um, and, and, uh, so this movie has, it, it goes the opposite way. It, 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 it doesn't trust its audience to be able to put the pieces together. 
Um, to be fair, because of all the fantastical and magical elements in the movie, it does need those lines of dialogue to take the audience along because it's like we don't know how this stuff works. I mean, even when you watch it, you don't know. So, uh, but it's um, you do the best you can with what you got, and it's something like that that can be fixed. Another thing that another little moment that's coming to mind that I know can be corrected is uh, there's this scene where. Um, uh, they get what's his name? Skarsgård, Peter Sarsgård, or Stellan Starsgard, I think Skarsgård, whatever his name is. Anyway, he has been going insane, uh, naked, and has been arrested and put into a psych ward because he was doing something over at uh, at um, at uh, Stonehenge. And that you know that's an, that actually is another edit that I, I realized um, because what happens is the characters, uh, uh, the two interns, they see him on TV, realize he's been arrested, and in the following scene, go take him out of the psychiatric ward. Whereas in the original, there is another introductory scene of him uh, going to there and getting arrested, and then many scenes later, uh, that is on television for them to watch. Um, so you only get revealed of him doing this the second time. You don't get that first introduction of the character. You only get it on the television, which, to uh, TM's credit, is the better way to do it because you learn of what's going on with the character at the same time these other characters do, so that, that is more engaging. Um, however, you n- we never get satisfaction as to why Stonehenge and why is he there? Why is he acting the fool? Um, and the only satisfaction you get in that is a one line of dialogue where he says, if to, as he's getting rescued, I think one of the guys, not rescued, but as he's getting taken out of the psych ward, the intern asks him are you, or something like, are you okay? And he says, well, I've had a god in my brain. I don't recommend it. Um, suggesting that he's crazy or he thinks he's crazy or that was the reason why he went to Stonehenge or whatever. I don't know. Um, the point is, is that that character's motivations, they're not, they're not really well established in the original and it's a little bit worse in this one. Um, perhaps this is a small, uh, I'm, I'm being nitpicky on purpose, uh, to be honest. There's the, the big stuff I think is, is, it was accomplished by TM, but it's about the nitpicky things that I'm wondering if they were fixed. I would be, I would say, you know what, this is a seven, not a six, but it's a six, you know? Um, but anyway, the scene that I was, uh, was saying that could be fixed is when they leave the psychiatric ward for the first time, or really the only time, when they leave the ward, um, they go out and they look, they go to, their eyes go to the sky, they're caught by a, a flock of birds who then fly into a portal, and then, that, then they come out of the portal, but the portal happens to be at their feet, and they get surrounded by these birds as they're flying away, and it's just like, it is one of those moments that is, that is so... It's so it's absurd because why is there a portal there and why is the exit of the portal at their feet um, and why isn't anybody else noticing this and how convenient that it happens to them and it's uh, it's it's so you have to really shut your brain off to kind of accept that that's what's going on I, I really dislike that scene um, but at the end of that scene, he he's kind of proud of himself, and a Skarsgård character, the Skarsgård's character is, and says, "Oh, it's wonderful to know that you're that you're not insane. It's just the re- the rest of the world is a little more insane than you are." And then he throws out uh, what would be a psychiatric meds. Um, but I think what you can do is you can cut that whole bird thing altogether. There. They, you know, they get out. I've had God's. He says the line with, uh, I've, had a, "I've had a God in my head." 
uh, another line of dialogue, and then it just cuts to him throwing away the pills, going, uh, whatever his line of dialogue is, like, it's good to know that the world is less insane than you are, something like that. I think you can cut out that whole bird thing. Um, uh, I, 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 have to, I have to qualify it with, I think, you know, it, it could be one of those edits where, you know, you sit down, you have, like, an idea of how it's going to work, and you crop it all up and when you're done you're left with a jarring sort of moment that can't be smoothed over in any sense and it's like that jarring moment is a little more is a little worse than what was uh what was in the film originally so um i i i think it can be released uh can be edited out but i i i take i, I could be make it could be making a little bit uh damaging the moment more than having it there um but the point is is that there's eh, maybe a half dozen half dozen maybe 10 little lines of dialogue that 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 fit this qualification where it's just it's not going to change the movie it's not going to make it radically different but it's just a little more elbow grease on some of these lines that can create a little bit better uh moment um they're the kinds of edits that even if somebody were to bring like if i were to make if this was my edit and i and i showed it to people and i was kind of done if somebody came up to me afterwards after it was all done and i had already uploaded the files and everything and said hey you know what you can remove this line of dialogue where she asks this kid what happened uh be a little improvement i would play like yeah but i'm not going to crack open the files and and edit it just for that it's too much work so um i don't fault i don't fault uh I, that's uh, what i mean to say is that that's how significant or how insignificant those kind of edits are um they're the kind of things that bother i think people like myself who are are hypersensitive to um how the story is unfolding and what the characters say as opposed to what they do or what can be shown and um and uh yeah so i don't think anybody's gonna have i don't think anybody's gonna take umbrage with those kinds of issues like perhaps i and maybe some other um, eagle-eyed fan, fan editor might be. But uh, this is, uh, you know, like I said, this is an improvement over the original. It really is. Um, I, except for the Loki thing, I think it can totally uh, replace your disc. Um, I think if you showed it to people who aren't, who aren't that familiar with uh, Thor 2, I think many of them would would barely would would barely recognize that it's a, a fan edit. I think they would all just kind of like, yep, that's what came out in theaters. Uh, a little bit better than I remember, but uh, that's what was out in theaters. I think that's how the general populace would respond to this film. Um, and uh, perhaps that's what TM was going for. You know, just you know, just co- uh, poly- you know, smoothing out some of those rough edges and you know, leaving it at that. Um, and that's what it is. Uh, yes, it's better than the original. Is it a nine? No. Um, and I don't think the material could get that high anyway. Um, but a good edit. And, uh, if, if you are a fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and, um, you are looking for ways to kind of, you know, up the quality of some of the individual films, you know, this is a a great start. Uh, find it TM2YC Thor 2, The Dark forged edition i believe on fanedit.info uh you should get it and uh, add it to your collection and this is me signing off thank you for listening and uh i guess uh, you'll hear me on the next episode all right take it easy bye <laughs>